Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. We started chapter 9 last week, 1 through 8. This week we're in uh, verses 9 through 17. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. It's page 748 if you're using one of our hardback Bibles there in, in the pew in front of you. It'd be helpful if you're looking at the Word as, I, as we move along. Um, also helpful, people do it differently. Sometimes folks will look at the Bible on their phone or will just use the Bible here. You might have a Bible at home that's big maybe. But if your Bible is easy to bring with you to church, I just encourage you, that's all things being equal. That's a helpful thing. So one way to get to know the Bible well is by getting to know your Bible well. Typically, those things go hand in hand. But, uh, but, but certainly, there's extenuating circumstances sometimes. But, but just have a copy of the Bible open if you're able. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Um, there's an outline, a bare bones outline that's there in the worship guide. You could open that up if that's helpful for you to, to see where we're headed. So, uh, so through the prophet Zechariah, you know, we're in chapter 9 now, so we're over halfway, and we've already seen throughout the book, basically what the book centers on is God giving these promises to his people. So he's making these prophecies about the future, about salvation and judgment that will be for the good of his people. But basically, these are promises. That's what Zechariah has been. That's what it'll continue to be, God making his people these promises. So promises about having their sins taken away. We've seen him talk about that. Promises about having a future heavenly city that's built for them and, and then being eternally protected from their enemies. But God hasn't been as clear about how he's going to accomplish these promises. He's laid the promises out there, but it's not crystal clear he hasn't been about kind of the figure that is at the center of those accomplishments. He's kind of hinted at it a little bit. So we've seen this a few times now. So in chapter 3, verse 18, he calls, he talks about an individual and he calls him my servant, the branch. So there's kind of a glimmer. Okay, so there's an individual God's talking about who will be at the center of accomplishing these promises. In chapter five, he leverages the example of Joshua, who was the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, who was the local governor there. He leverages their example to kind of prefigure this future individual. Like, okay, look at these two guys. They kind of point forward to this other figure in the future. In chapter 6, the Lord points to this branch. There he calls him the branch again, just like he did in chapter 3. He points to the branch and he says that he'll be both a priest and a king. That was unique. That was unusual. Most people weren't both, but this future branch will be both. Well, now in our passage, God clearly ties all of those promises to his people to a singular king. He makes it really, really clear. It's been a little bit shadowy up until now, but now he makes it crystal clear. All the promises are going to be accomplished by a singular individual, a singular king. That's what's happening in our passage this morning. And remember the context of the passage. The end of the book of Zechariah is made up of these two oracles that are just declarations about God's judgment and about salvation for his, his people. And the first oracle, it began at the start of chapter 9. That's where we were last week. So, so this is still this first oracle. We continue on in it this morning. And this passage, it, it definitely contains the most well-known words in the book of Zechariah. In fact, some of the most well-known words in the Old Testament. So we won't read the entire passage up front, but let's at least hear those words. These ones that we're so familiar with. 
verse 9 in Zechariah chapter 9, the Lord says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, this, this is the promise God is making to his people that there is a coming king. And he's coming to do a particular perform a, a particular task for the people. So the way we're going to look at the passage, the way that it's laid out for us, there's one main truth in these verses. And then there's two particular applications that the Lord gives to his people from the main truth. So the truth, and it's our first point, the truth is that the king is coming to bring peace. The king is coming to bring peace. That's the main idea of the passage. But then there's two applications. These are listed there in the outline. Application one is that because of that, we should rejoice. And application two, because of that, we should work for this king, be employed by him now. So look back at the beginning of our passage, verse one. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So the Lord is talking about a future king, and he's saying the people can put their hope, the people should put their hope in this future king. And, and this vision, it definitely provided the people with hope. So remember again the details, we've talked about this before, the details of the people back in the promised land. They've been freed from Babylonian captivity, they've been brought back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land, but the temple hasn't been rebuilt yet. And that means that the people can't really have access to God's presence because they're sinners and he's holy. That has to be mediated for God's people to be in the midst or for God to be in the midst of his people who are sinners. That's what the temple was for, but the temple isn't rebuilt yet. So they can't really experience the presence of God. But it also means the sacrifices haven't been reestablished yet. And that's the way the people's sins were at least temporarily taken care of. But that system's not in place yet. Financially, they're not doing great. There's no industry that's built up yet. The other nations around them are sort of against them. So they're making it hard for Israel to get resources that they need. The Persians, who were the reigning superpower, they, they were the ones that let Israel come back. Israel's still kind of under their thumb. So one example is Zerubbabel. He's not a king. He's only a governor. That's because Persia wouldn't let them have a king. So Persia said, you guys aren't having a king. We'll let you have a governor. So they're still basically under Persian rule. Again, there's all these enemy armies and nations around Israel sort of threatening them. And aside from all that, there's still lots of Israelites who haven't yet been brought back to the promised land. There's still a lot of God's people that are up in the northern kingdom in Samaria from that split that happened after Solomon's rule. You might remember this, Israel split, and there's the northern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom that's called Judah. Well, the folks that are back in the promised land is basically just Judah. So there's a lot of God's people that, that aren't there. So there, there's all sorts of bad stuff that's going on. And, and God's people have been losing hope. But here they're given a promise from the Lord. And it's a, it's a flesh and blood promise. There's a king coming who's going to fix all of these things. 
And again, this is the main point of our passage. It's the first point we're looking at now. The king is coming to bring peace. And this, this promised king, he is singularly unique. There is, there is nobody else like him. He's unlike any king who has ever lived, as this prophecy says it. So let's see why that is. Look at how the Lord describes this coming king in the middle of verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Okay, so the first thing Judah is told is the king will be righteous. He'll be righteous. So, so think of the history of Israel's dealings with kings. So their nation had basically fallen apart because of the lineage of really bad kings after Solomon. That's why, the, that's why the kingdom had split. And you can read about that in the Old Testament in these historical narratives. The kings were bad. Most of them did not love the Lord. Most of them had made themselves enemies of God. So the nation had fallen apart because of bad kings. And think about Solomon. Even as wise as Solomon was, he still closed out his reign in a pretty unrighteous way. So First, first Kings 11 tells us that he had foreign wives who he wasn't supposed to marry, but he disobeyed the Lord. He married these foreign wives, and then we're told they turned his heart away from the Lord. So Solomon ended his reign in a really unrighteous way. Think about Israel's first king, Saul. You know, through Mark and Tim's sermon series in 1 Samuel, we've seen how unrighteous Saul is, drops the ball time and time again. Even David, who was the high point for human kings in Israel's history, even David, the best king, was a liar and an adulterer and a murderer, right? So Israel, they had had their, their own king uh, be unrighteous. They'd never had a king who was completely righteous. And then for the past hundred years or so, they'd been under foreign kings who didn't even aim to be righteous, didn't even say it in word. They, they were just idol worshipers, right? Worshiped fake gods. So Israel had never experienced the reign of a perfectly righteous king. We know what that's like, right? So we're under governing authorities. We, we've never had a perfect government. We've never had a, a perfect leader. You know, to, to varying degrees, every president of your lifetime has, has made certain mistakes, been involved in certain scandals. Well, Israel, their experience was the same. They had never had a perfectly righteous king. But God tells them this future king will be righteous. That's something, isn't it? We can hear that. We've heard it a million times. The, the king is righteous. But we sort of don't, don't think about it at the depth it probably requires. It's an incredible thing. The future king, he tells Israel, will be righteous. He will only do and say and think and feel what perfectly pleases the Lord all the time. Well, that, that's incredible enough. But what's really amazing is, is that whereas that quality would make you or I prideful, if you were righteous in this way, if I was righteous, we'd be prideful right? We, we probably wouldn't have time for sinners like the rest of people. We would push people away, reject folks who weren't as righteous as we are. But look at the description we're given of the coming king in the middle of verse 9. So behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble. So not only will he be righteous, the future king will be humble. Maybe a better translation for the way we understand it, 
gentle. The king will be gentle in the way he deals with people in particular. And isn't that exactly what we need? So we need somebody who's a perfect ruler, but who will deal gently with imperfect subjects like us. That's who God says this future king will be. And as believers, we we would know who this prophecy is talking about. Even if it wasn't picked up in the New Testament and, and we're sort of given the answer, we would know who it's talking about. But the New Testament does pick up this verse explicitly and tell us exactly who it's talking about. It was our New Testament reading this morning. This is Matthew verse, or chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, it's talking about Zechariah, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So here at the end of his ministry, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the Lord tells us that's a fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Um, For what it's worth, one thing that I'll always do with an Old Testament verse like this that's quoted in the New Testament, you probably noticed in the New Testament, if there's an Old Testament verse quoted, it'll give you the reference. So in this, uh, this verse in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 21, you've probably got a footnote that says, oh, this is from Zechariah. But you might also notice it doesn't do that in Zechariah. Man, I wish they did. Don't know why they don't. They don't do it. So in my Bible, when I see something like that in this verse in Zechariah, I'll write Matthew 21 next to it. Because what that does is it gives you a Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on the Old Testament. Because you can flip to the New Testament and see how that verse is used and leveraged by the Lord. So for what that's worth, you could write that in there. I found that to be helpful. So it's a fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is Zechariah's promised king. And in terms of the two attributes we just talked about, there's nobody that has more of them than, than Jesus. So Jesus is perfectly righteous. There's no one more righteous than Christ. He always loves God perfectly, and he always loves other people perfectly. He fulfills God's commands. Hebrews 7.26 tells us that Jesus is, listen to how he piles up these adjectives, holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. So just, just think about for a minute, compare it to yourself. Think about how many sinful thoughts you have a day. And we're not even talking about sinful actions where it actually comes out and is exposed. No, just think about the sin that happens inside of you that only the Lord sees. The number of sinful thoughts you have a day where, for example, you're sinfully judgmental of somebody or jealous or lusting or selfish. Jesus never had a single thought like that ever. Is that not insane? What a wild thing. We do it constantly. It never happened to Jesus. He never had a thought like that ever. According to God's perfect standard, Jesus has never missed the mark in his actions or words or thoughts or feelings. 
And isn't that exactly the kind of king we should want to serve? A perfectly righteous king. But see, Jesus, he's not only righteous, he's also humble. He has both of these things. In fact, the same word is used in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, when Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So Jesus is gentle. And, and as Christians, we, we need to remember that. Jesus is gentle with us. Jesus is gentle with you. Like we're told in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, we are like reeds down by the creek, you know, that, that bend so easy. The wind sometimes will blow over a reed and it'll break, it'll crack. That's us, we're weak. But, but Matthew 12, 20 tells us Jesus is gentle with you to keep you from snapping. He can handle you in a way where, where you won't break. He's, he's gentle. You know, every Christmas, when we get out the ornaments to put up on the tree, there's always fragile ornaments. And so it's one of these things where Maria and I are kind of always paying attention because they could, the kids could open up a box where it's a really fragile ornament. And we'll say Emmy because she's not in here. And if she was, she, she wouldn't get her feelings hurt anyway. And Emmy will go to grab that ornament. And we say, no, you, you can't have that one, right? Because Emmy doesn't know how to be gentle enough with that thing. Well, nobody else would, would know how to be gentle enough with us to keep us from breaking, but Jesus does. He's gentle with us. And you know, one, one thing that should mean for you is that you should go to Jesus quickly for help, right? You should go to Jesus quickly for help knowing how gentle he is. So we, we all understand this, but, but most humans, well, all humans have a limit where if you ask for too much help or you ask, too many questions or you mess up enough they get frustrated even the most patient person among us gets frustrated after a while as we continue to mess up jesus never gets frustrated not something he never gets frustrated he wants you to come to him and and when you don't understand something bad that has happened in your life you wonder why has this thing happened come to jesus and talk about that thing when you have a need, come to Jesus and ask for his help. When you've sinned again the way you've sinned a million times before, come to Jesus and confess it and ask for forgiveness. Jesus is humble and gentle. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, isn't this the kind of king that you want to serve? He'll, he'll never let you down because he's, he's perfectly righteous and he's perfectly gentle. And he's the only one who can pardon you from all your sins because he's the only one who could die on the cross with a perfect life to trade for your imperfect life. He, he's our only hope. So come to King Jesus, trusting in him alone to save you. Come talk to me. Talk to one of the other pastors if, if you're interested in, in thinking more about being served by Jesus in that way and, and serving this king. So that's the character of the coming king. That's who he is according to Zechariah, but, but what will he do? Well, Zechariah tells us this future king is coming in order to establish his reign in this place. He, he's coming back to rule the world, and he'll rule in a way that brings peace. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. So the coming king will rule in a way that brings peace. 
So, so whereas the northern kingdom, what verse 10 calls Ephraim, that was after their leading tribe. They, they became known by that. That was sort of a nickname for the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom had a history of nations attacking it. The Assyrians had come and, and devastated the place. But this coming king will bring peace. We're told, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, meaning he'll, he'll keep the chariots from attacking God's people in the north. That's the picture that we're given. And like the next phrase in verse 10, he'll cut off the war horse from attacking the south. You know, the southern kingdom had fallen to the Babylonians, but we're told, no, the coming king will, will bring peace to God's people in the south. Middle of verse 10, and the battle bow, like a bow and arrow, the, the battle bow shall be cut off. All these images are getting at the same idea. It's summed up in the next line, verse 10, and he shall speak peace to the nations. So the king is coming to establish peace through his reign, and our world needs that. So we need peace. Ever since Genesis 3, people have been fighting. Now, the worst kind of fighting is the kind that your non-Christian neighbor doesn't even think about. So the culture around us, when they hear that there's a problem of people fighting, they think, oh, people fighting with one another, which is a problem. We're going to talk about that in a second. That's not the worst kind of fighting. The worst kind of fighting is humans fighting against the Lord. That's the worst kind of fighting. And that kind of fighting has been happening ever since Genesis 3 when humanity turned our back on the Lord and fell in sin. We've been declaring rebellion against God ever since, attacking God by, by withholding worship from him, by sinning against him, disobeying his word. So, so humans fighting against God, that's the worst kind of fighting. But humans also fight against other, other humans. And, and the worst version of that kind of fighting is when God's enemies fight against God's people. God really doesn't like that. But it happens from the beginning of Genesis on. So in Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. And in Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife has Joseph falsely imprisoned. In Exodus, Pharaoh has God's people enslaved. In the rest of the Old Testament, the enemy nations continue to attack God's people. In the book of Acts, we see the governing authorities imprison the apostles simply for preaching the gospel. And in Acts 7, we see a group of Jewish leaders kill Stephen. And the absolute worst version of violence in the history of the world combines fighting, uh, fighting against God with fighting against God's people. That's when people crucified Jesus, the God-man. So ever since Genesis 3, this world has been characterized by fighting. It's like our call to worship this morning in Psalm 46, where it says the nations rage. That's what it's talking about. The nations fight. God's enemies fight against one another and against God's people and against God. But see, the promise of Zechariah 9, verse 9 through 17, is that it won't be that way forever. There's a day when King Jesus is returning, and he will say, enough and it will be done. In fact, that's what we saw at the end of Psalm 46, the call to worship. Listen to Psalm 46, verse nine. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. Sounds just like our passage, doesn't it? He burns the chariots with fire. This is what he says. Be still and know that I am God. I, I will be exalted among the nations. 
It's funny, so that verse, be still and know that I am God, a lot of times we think about that as sort of a comforting thing. Don't be nervous, you can be still. That certainly is true. The Bible's clear about that. That's not what this verse is saying. No, this verse, when he says be still, he's saying stop your fighting. Cease. Quit fighting against me and against my people and against one another. Stop. He'll bring full and lasting peace to the world. And like we saw a few weeks ago in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 4, on that day, the most vulnerable person, an elderly person or a child, can be out on the street and nobody will have to worry about them. It's an image talking about the kind of peace that we will have in the new heavens and in the new earth. There'll be complete peace when the coming king fully establishes his reign. In fact, that's why he's riding on a donkey. So that was typical for kings. That, that wasn't an odd thing. Kings regularly rode donkeys, but only during peacetime. That's what it symbolized. They rode a horse in wartime. They rode a donkey in peacetime. This king is coming to bring peace. But Zechariah is clear and the rest of the Bible is there's only two ways to get that kind of peace in the world. So the coming king is coming to bring peace. It's going to happen. But there's only two paths that can produce peace. And King Jesus will be responsible for both paths. One way is for Jesus to bring peace by covering somebody's sins and recreating them in the gospel. Look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Okay, so God's using this image of being rescued from a pit to talk about salvation. So you remember how when Joseph's brothers decided to betray him, they throw him into a pit? That's the kind of imagery being used here. You, you have no hope. You're trapped if you're in a pit. And throughout the Old Testament, it's used to talk about kind of being judged away from the Lord. So you remember the psalmist a lot of times uses this language, God rescue me from the pit. So it's a picture of, of God rescuing his people. And verse 11 says he'll, he'll save them, he'll rescue them because of the blood of my covenant with you. Okay, so what does that mean? The blood of my covenant with you. Well, in scripture, covenant, that language is, is talking about the the bond that's formed between two parties, two different individuals or groups through making certain promises to one another. So marriage is a covenant, the way that the Bible talks about it, but, but there's also specific covenants that God makes throughout history. For example, God makes a covenant with David. He makes a covenant with Abraham before that. And he's made a covenant with us as believers in Jesus, what the New Testament calls the new covenant. Okay, so, so which covenant is God talking about in verse 11? I think we can be pretty confident. He's talking about the covenant he made to Israel through Moses. What's oftentimes called the Mosaic covenant or the law covenant or the Sinai covenant. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews talks about it with, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. He says, therefore, not even the first covenant, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, when God gives his law to Israel through Moses, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 
Okay, so, so you can see how the law covenant through Moses, the language about blood in that covenant, basically identical with the language here in, in verse 11. So the folks hearing this prophecy from Zechariah, they certainly would have thought about the law covenant, the covenant God makes with Israel after he brings them out of bondage in, in Egypt. But here's the thing. Israel had broken that covenant. The Mosaic covenant had been broken, not by the Lord, he's always faithful, but by Israel. Flip over to chapter 11, verse 10 in Zechariah. Let's look at what it says there about this covenant. Chapter 11, verse 10, the Lord says this to his people. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So remember, we talked about this in Galatians, the law covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it called on God's people to obey him perfectly. That was one of the stipulations. God would be faithful, but his people also had to be perfectly faithful. They had to obey the law as it's sort of summed up in the Ten Commandments, but all the other examples of what it means to follow God faithfully, they had to do all that perfectly if they wanted to uphold the law covenant, if they wanted to uphold the Mosaic covenant. Remember, we saw this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. They were told, for all who rely on the works of the law, talking about the law covenant, all those people are under a curse. Why? For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. See, that's how it works for anybody trying to be good enough in this life to please the Lord. If that's the route somebody takes, if they're trying to be justified in God's eyes by their own works, then they have to perform those works perfectly. You can never have a bad day. You can never have a bad thought. You can never fall short, not even once. Of course, the problem with that is every human is, is a sinner, and Israel was made up of sinners just like us, so they broke the law covenant. So, so since Israel had broken that covenant, okay, back to verse 11, what's the Lord talking about? That covenant's broken. So what covenant's he talking about in verse 11? As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Well, he's pointing forward to a better covenant, a better promise. He's pointing forward to the new covenant, the same one we heard about in our assurance of forgiveness. In Jeremiah 31, which talks about how God will make a new covenant with his people, not like the old covenant, the law covenant they broke. He'll make a new covenant, and that covenant will be unbreakable. It's the covenant Jesus talks about at the Lord's Supper. Listen to this. Compare the language of verse 11 in our passage with what Jesus says. So there it talks about the blood of the covenant. This is Matthew 26, verse 27. And Jesus took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So see, the new covenant is a permanent covenant because Jesus' blood solves our sin problem. Jesus' blood covers over our sins, makes us innocent in God's eyes covers our sins past, present, and future, and it reconciles us to God as his children forever. Verse 11, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. Okay, so that's one path Jesus uses to bring peace to the world, is by saving people, by covering the sins of individual uh, people, 
and bringing them to the Lord. But we know that not everyone will repent of sin. Not everybody will come to Christ and trust in his blood. So how can peace be secured in a situation where Jesus' enemies continue on in their rebellion and don't trust in him? Well, if, if Jesus doesn't def defeat rebellion with his blood, then he'll do it with a sword. That's the other path. There's two paths that King Jesus will use to bring peace. One is his blood. The other is a sword. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So the picture we're given is the king will produce peace with, with arrows that will hit their victims with the speed of lightning. That's the imagery that, that God is using here. He'll, he'll be like a king that makes war on these bad guys. That's what the symbolism is getting at with the sounding the trumpet. In the ancient Near East, the trumpet was blown as a signal to the army that you're going to charge ahead. Like verse 14 says, Jesus' army will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. It'll be like he's coming in a fierce storm, is the imagery there, to destroy his enemies. And the Lord has talked about this several times in Zechariah. You probably remember that one day he'll defeat all of his people's enemies, all of his enemies. Listen to Zechariah chapter 1, verse 21. And these have come to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah. Or chapter 2, verse 9, Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. We saw it even last week. Chapter 9, verse 4. But behold, the Lord will strip her, these bad guys, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. So part of the way Jesus will produce peace is through a final war against all of his enemies. It's like we just saw in Revelation 11, earlier in the congregational reading, he will destroy the destroyers of the earth. So there's people destroying the earth, they're fighting against God, fighting against God's people. Christ will destroy the destroyers of the earth. You can think about Revelation 20. When Jesus returns, then, then Satan and all his other enemies will be gathered together and, and fully and finally defeated and sent into eternal judgment. So that's what Jesus will do. So, so for the ones who won't seek peace through his blood, they'll be defeated with his sword. But he hasn't done that yet, right? It's really interesting. So this promise in Zechariah, it's like this in the rest of the Old Testament. When it points God's people ahead to the coming king, it seems like there's only going to be a single coming. That's what it looks like here in Zechariah. So if you had said to them, hey, how many times is the king going to come? Undoubtedly, they would have said, well, once. He's going to come once. He's going to come once, save his people, destroy his enemies. That all happens at the same time. But see, that's not how it has happened, right? That's not how it's happened. What they didn't know was that King Jesus was going to come twice. They didn't know Jesus was going to come twice. The first time was only for the purpose of, of humbly laying down his life for sinners. There was no immediate judgment. In fact, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, it was only going to be a few more days before he was crucified, gave up his life to his enemies. 
No, Jesus tells us he, he could have called down a bunch of angels. You remember that verse? He says, there's legions of angels. If I didn't want to go to the cross, I could call them down. They would take care of this here and now, but, but he doesn't do that. The sword wasn't part of the equation at Jesus' first coming. He didn't come to judge those enemies. We're still waiting on that. But remember what the angels tell the disciples in Acts 1 verse 11. You remember when Jesus ascends to go be with the Father? This is what they tell his followers. They say, this Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus is one day coming back. He's one day coming back, and that's when he'll perform this work of judgment. To, to use the imagery of Revelation, on that day he won't be riding a donkey. He'll be riding a horse because it won't be peacetime. It'll be war time where he puts to death all of his enemies. So one question we should ask ourselves, so why two comings of Christ instead of just one? Right? They would have thought just one. These prophecies make it sound like just one. He comes and does everything at the same time. Well, it seems that it's got to be entirely because of God's grace. So why are there two comings? I think it's really clear because God is a gracious God. Because he's so incredibly gracious, he's giving his enemies the opportunity to repent. Isn't that incredible? He's giving his enemies the opportunity to repent. The opportunity to have their sin defeated by Jesus' blood instead of by his sword. And that's why we want to preach the gospel to non-believers, right? That's why we want to support church planting efforts in North America and around the world. That, that's why we began supporting Grace Harbor Church in Providence, Rhode Island. So they can plant other churches in New England, pretty spiritually dark place, not many good churches. And so they can strengthen the churches that are there. And so hopefully more non-believers will come to Christ. That's why we began supporting Paul Snyder and his work in Papua New Guinea and Harshit Singh in northern India and Ken Mabukwa in Kenya. So, so more people can hear the gospel and have the opportunity to be saved and, and avoid destruction. But, but at the same time, as we work for more folks to come to Christ, we should be thankful that eventually a day of judgment is coming. It's, it's good news that Jesus will one day finally bring peace. Look at the middle of verse 10. And he shall speak peace to the nations. And look at the next phrase to see how far his rule will extend. It's not just over a portion of the world. Now we're told his rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river, probably talking about the Euphrates River, from the river to the ends of the earth. So when Jesus returns, he'll bring full and lasting peace over all of creation. Like we're told in Revelation 11, verse 15, the kingdom of this world will have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And can you even imagine that? Living for eternity in a world where there is only perfect peace all the time everywhere. No fighting no, no conflict of any kind, no sin of any kind. Everyone will obey the Lord perfectly and, and love him and love everybody else perfectly because everybody in that place will have either been recreated in the gospel or put out of that place forever, kept outside of heaven. And when, when we think of that, it, it can feel kind of like a, a prisoner who's looking forward to his release date. We're imprisoned in a way in this life with all this fighting and turmoil and sin. 
We know one day Jesus is coming back to, to fix all of this in, in a way to free us. In fact, he uses just that imagery. Look at verse 11. He says, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. That's who we are, right? As we wait for the king, we're prisoners of hope. Now, in, in our rema remaining minutes, how should we then respond to this wonderful promise? Well, there's two applications that Zechariah gives us in particular. They're listed there in the sermon notes. We see the first application in the opening words of our passage. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So because our king is returning to us, we should rejoice. It's the first application. The first thing we should do with this passage of scripture, we should rejoice. It's like we sang earlier in the service. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Jesus is returning, so his people should rejoice. We bought a, a new TV not long ago, and then all of a sudden these weird lines showed up on the TV. And so I contacted Vizio and was sort of gearing myself up for a fight. Praise the Lord, they, they made it so easy. And so they, they're going to send us a new TV, and when we get it, we put the old one in the box and send it back on their dime, and hopefully everything's taken care of. Well, my family figured this is going to be a fight. Are we going to, you know, get a new TV or just have to keep this TV or whatever? When we found out that they were going to send us a new one, that a new TV was on the way, we rejoiced, right? That was sort of a small rejoicing. But the members of our family, as I told them, we rejoiced. We understand what that's like, but, but how much more should we rejoice about the coming king who's going to bring peace to the entire universe, who's going to get rid of sin for, for all time? We should rejoice more about that than, than anything else. Look at the middle of verse 15. One day we'll be with the Lord, and, and to use the, the words here, drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl. Might make some of you uncomfortable, but here's, here's what I think he's getting at. You know, the, the drunk person has no inhibitions. It's one reason why it's bad to drink too much alcohol, right? alcohol a gift from the lord if somebody chooses to enjoy that gift but we understand drinking too much clearly sinful and it takes away people's inhibitions so the person who's intoxicated everything peripheral in their life sort of drifts away it's one reason why people do drink too much when they do is is to let those things drift away but see we'll, we'll be like that when we're with the lord everything else will drift away from our thinking Everything peripheral will be gone. Our focus will be, will be on Christ. And that's what's in front of us. So, Zechariah tells us, rejoice. Read about this hope in the Bible and rejoice before the Lord. R remind your fellow church members about this truth and rejoice. Rejoice in front of non-Christians so they can see the hope that's in you about the gospel. Rejoice by singing the songs loudly on Sunday. So the king is returning to bring peace, so rejoice. But then the second main application we see in our passage is that you should work for this king. So not only rejoice, but also work for this king. Look at verses 12 and 13. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. 
So once God proclaims salvation to his people, he instantly turns and then employs them in his service. He tells them about the future king coming to give them peace, and then right away in verse 12, he turns and he says, therefore, return to your stronghold. He's telling them, okay, the king's coming to give you victory, so come to your post. Be, be part of this army. And this is truly, I think, one of the underappreciated parts of the gospel. God doesn't only cover our sins through Christ and save us. As soon as he saves us, he employs us to be ministers of this gospel, to be participants in the work of the kingdom. Look again at the illustration he uses in verse 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. So God's going to use his people as weapons to accomplish his purposes in the world. Look at the middle of verse 13. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, one of their enemies, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So God will use his people like a sword to accomplish his will. Once God saves someone, he instantly employs them in his service. We see Jesus do the same thing in the Gospels. You might remember, but the story where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, this is Mark 131. This is what we're told about that. We see what I just said in action. Mark 131, and Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That's the idea. Jesus healed you so that you could then serve him. He uses us as his servants. He employs us. Now, we know Jesus wants you to do everything you do in order to serve him. We have Bible verses about that. Let me read you two. Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Do all to the glory of God. Okay, so we're supposed to do everything to serve the Lord, but there is this specific mission that God gave you immediately after you were saved. It's found in Matthew 28, verse 18. This is what we're told in the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So your job, the thing God saved you in order to do, is to bring the gospel to non-believers and to fellow Christians. Those are the two things that you're supposed to do. That's our job. So Matthew 28 makes it clear the job of the Christian is to make disciples of the nations. It means we look for opportunities to talk about Jesus with non-Christian family members and co-workers and neighbors. And of course, that's a, a scary thing. I think few in here would say, yeah, I think I do that well. I think most of us would say, oh, I do not do that well. I feel convicted. I feel convicted as I say what I just said. I think probably most of you feel convicted as, as you hear it. But, but here's something to remember that we just learned in Zechariah, something hopefully that will help us to be more faithful at this. In a way, it's not really you sharing the gospel with somebody. In a way, certainly it is. But in a way, it's not you sharing the gospel. It's more that God is sharing the gospel through you. He's just using you as an instrument to do it. 
So think again about verse 13 in our passage, this picture where God is using Judah as the bow and the northern kingdom as the arrow. Well, it's the same thing when you share the gospel. It's like you're a bow in God's hands and he's just pulling the string back. He's the one who is pulling back the gospel and firing it. He's just using you as an instrument. And the good news about that is God never misses a shot. He never misses a shot. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that everyone you share the gospel with is going to respond by trusting in Christ. But it, but it does mean that everyone you share the gospel with is going to respond the way God wants them to respond. Because he never misses a shot. So, so the pressure is off of you and me. We're just instruments in God's hands. It's God who's doing the shooting. So, so work for the king by bringing the gospel to non-Christians. But, but the thing we'll close with, the second part of our task, is one that God guarantees will, will produce good results. And that's the task of bringing the gospel to our fellow believers. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells us, don't just make disciples. He says, also teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus wants you to help other Christians obey Jesus. Jesus wants you to help other Christians obey Jesus. We've mentioned this verse a few times past few weeks. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So work for the Lord by building up your fellow church members with the gospel. How do you do that? Talk about spiritual things, right? Talk about the Lord. Confess sin to one another. Talk about what you're reading in the Bible. When, when a fellow member asks how your week is going, talk to them among other things. Talk to them about the last encouraging thing you remember reading devotionally. If you're the one asking the question, asking them about their week, ask what you were or what they were last encouraged by in their Bible reading. Look down at verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. The picture is God's people are like jewels in his crown. And, and his intention for us is to help shine one another, polish one another, to, to make us holier, to help us love our sin less and love Jesus more. We do that for each other as we bring the gospel to each other. So, so as God's instruments, he's using us to, to establish peace in this church and, and to offer that kind of peace to his enemies. We know that one day King Jesus will return and bring full and final peace to our world. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful for the good news of the gospel. We're so thankful that this king is returning. As surely as he came the first time riding on a donkey, proclaiming the opportunity of peace through his blood as he went to the cross, he will as surely return a second time. He could return today. And Father, our prayer is come Lord Jesus. We want to see the peace that he promises. We want to see that peace established in this universe. And it will be a peace that stretches from one end of the universe to the other and lasts forever. 
Father, would you use that truth to encourage us when things in this life are hard? Encourage us with the truth that our Savior is one day returning. We're so thankful, Father, for the Prince of Peace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.